Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, <clears throat> Father, old John Newton, at the end of his life, said, I'm an old man, and there's many things I do not remember, but there's two things I do remember. One is, I am a great sinner, and two, Christ is a great Savior. Father, that is what I pray today in every heart, whether young or old, that we would know ourselves by nature, by practice to be great sinners, <clears throat> but that we would know Jesus Christ to be an even greater Savior. And that because we know this Savior in this gospel, we could say, it is well with my soul. Lord, we pray that you would work now through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> I want to start with a couple questions. How many of you have ever turned to someone, a spouse maybe, a child, a co-worker, after they did something you thought was a little strange and said, what's wrong with you? Anybody? How many of you ever did something strange or said something you wish you hadn't and did one of these and said, what's wrong with me? Anybody? Well, if we take both of those questions this morning and just make them plural, we have the question of the morning. What's wrong with us? Really? And of course, there's many voices willing to speak on that, and there's many answers to that question, what's wrong with us? There's the societal answer. The French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. In other words, the problem's not with me, problem's with society. All the inhibitions and the restraints and the controls and the rules of society is what's wrong with us. There's the political answer, which is pretty hot today and will get hotter as uh, the election comes closer and closer. And so what's wrong with us, depending on where people are on the political spectrum, might be Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi or Adam Schiff or someone like that. Political answer. There's the psychological answer to that question, which comes in about 250 different varieties, but they're all saying the same thing. The psychological answer is your dysfunctional living is the result of nature or nurture or some combination. Again, it's not me, it's what's coming at me. Maybe closer to the truth is the reply of G.K. Chesterton to a question that appeared in the London Times well over 100 years ago. The London Times asked people to write in their answer to this question. What is wrong with the world today? And reportedly, G.K. Chesterton wrote in, Dear Sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's getting much closer to the truth. But if we want to know what is truly most deeply wrong with us, we need to look to God. We need to look to His Word. 
and his diagnosis will be true and it will be hard to hear. But the cure for what's wrong with us is glorious beyond your wildest dreams. But the cure will only appear truly glorious and do its healing work if we understand and own the diagnosis. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles right now to Jeremiah chapter 17. <clears throat> Jeremiah 17. We're going to read verses 5 through 15. Now, Jeremiah is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah, and because of their great sin, judgment and total destruction of Jerusalem are coming soon through Babylon. He's diagnosing their sin sickness and the reasons why this judgment is coming. But we know that whatever God did and spoke to the people of Israel and Judah was meant ultimately for the whole world. They were to be a microcosm of the whole world. So this word is not just a historical word to a people long ago. This is a word directly to us in 2019, and we will do well to listen carefully. And again, it will be a hard word, but it's the word that leads to healing and life and joy. So let's read Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him. And at the end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne is set on high from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. This passage lays out two trees. One is a tree planted by water and it bears fruit all the time. And another is a, is a dried up shrub that, that bears no fruit and doesn't see any good come. We're going to focus first of all 
on, on, the, on the, the shrub, the, the, the negative tree. And that's going to lead us to the gospel. But again, it's a hard word. What does God say is most deeply wrong with us? First of all, he says, our hearts are wrong with us. In verses 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God locates the, the, the deepest part of our problem, not in society, not in what comes at us, not in politics or education, but inside us, in our heart, in the control center, the inner man, the seat of all our passions, our affections, our thoughts, our beliefs, our imaginations, our purposes, and our plans. God says our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. Now, God acknowledges that there are all kinds of things in life that can contribute to what's wrong with us. He, he acknowledges that there are things that influence us and shape us, even tempt us or try to disciple us. We can call these secondary causes for what's wrong with us. And these would include things like our bodies, okay? Our genetics, our heredity, the way our brains are wired, the way our, way our hormones are balanced, various physical illnesses or weaknesses or even disabilities. God acknowledges that these things influence us. Obviously, we're influenced also by our relationships, our families, the friends we hang out with, the peers who influence us, our culture that is shaping us and, and changing all the time. Also, traumatic experiences. If someone has experienced a sudden loss of a loved one or war or some kind of abuse, those things have shaping influences on us. There's also spiritual influences. Jesus says we have an enemy whom he calls a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And he says his goal is to steal and kill and destroy. The hard thing about this is we can't see him, and so we can't quantify what his influence is in our lives. But whenever there is moral or physical evil, when things are wrong, we know he's at work. All of these have a significant influence in our lives, but they're all secondary. God says what is primarily wrong with us is our heart. Jesus says the same thing. In Luke 6, 43 through 45, Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And then in Mark 7, 21 through 23, same idea. Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, pride, slander, envy, foolishness. 
All these things come from within, and they defile a person. The best illustration of how all this works I learned from David Paulison. I don't know if he came up with it, but he, imagine that I have a plastic water bottle right here, and the top is off, and it's filled to the top. And if I hit it really hard, water would spray all over the, the stage here. And if I said, why is there water on the stage? You would answer, being the bright people that you are, because you hit it. And that would be true. Or if I took it and I squeezed it and water just dribbled all over the floor and I said, why is there water on the floor? Because you squeezed it out. And that would be true. Or if I just tipped it, same thing. Those would be reasons, but not the deepest reason why there's water all over the place. The deepest reason is there's water on the floor because there was water in the bottle. And that's what Jesus is saying. Yes, life can slam us and hit us and thoughts and feelings and words and actions come out. Or grinding pressures can just squeeze us, same thing. But ultimately, whatever is in your heart is what comes out. And the proof of that is Jesus himself. No one experienced more continuous grinding stresses, pressures, and temptations than Jesus. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief all his life, and especially at the end of his life. And life slammed him. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was stripped. He was spit on. He was scourged, and he was hung on a cross. And as all of this evil came at him, what came out of him? Only faith and love. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Today, you will be with me in paradise. John, behold your mother. Take care of her for me. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No matter what happened to Jesus, no matter what suffering, all that came out of him what was it, is what was in his pure and holy heart. And God says our hearts are deceitful. We deceive ourselves. We can deceive others. We try to deceive God, and they're desperately sick. I know most of you know who C.S. Lewis was. Lewis said that our heart is a zoo of lusts. And he wrote a poem. Not many people know that he was a, a poet earlier in his career. And this poem called As the Ruin Falls <clears throat> captures what he thinks is the dynamic of the human heart. He says, all this is flatter, flashy rhetoric about loving you. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends, merely to serve my turn. Peace reassurance, pleasure are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. I talk of love. A scholar's parrot may talk Greek, but self-imprisoned always end where I begin. God says our hearts are what's wrong with us. Secondly, God says our false worship is what's wrong with us. 
And of course, this naturally follows from a deceitful and desperately sick heart. In verse 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Sometimes we think that life can be divided into different compartments. We have a physical part to life. We have a uh, social part to life. We have a material part to life and a spiritual part to life. But that's totally unbiblical. There is no unspiritual part of life. All of life is meant to be lived for God. We are inescapably spiritual beings, and we're always worshiping somebody. That means we're always looking to, trusting in, depending on, following, finding our identity and security in, and honoring somebody above all else. And according to Scripture, our default mode is to look to man instead of God. That's false worship. It's idolatry. And these idols could be and are anyone besides Christ. It could include various other people. Maybe the person you, you mostly look to for life is your spouse or your children. Maybe it's your peer culture or your friends. Maybe it's your sports team or your alma mater or your political party or your interest groups. Maybe it's even your pastor or your favorite theologians. Somebody has our attention. We're living for the approval of, we're living to find security in, and we're living for somebody. But the more I know myself and the more I know other people, the more I see that usually it's me. Usually it's me I'm, I'm living for. How often are we our own lawgiver, advocate, defense attorney, and usually pretty lenient judge for ourselves? We are our own God. Authors Paul, uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane point out that our self-worship can take the form of different isms. It could take the form of legalism, where you trust in your own works. It could take the form of mysticism, where you trust in your religious experiences. It could take the form of activism, trusting in your dedication to various causes. Or it can even take the form of biblicism, trusting in your theological knowledge. As that great theologian of the 1970s says, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And this false worship is usually totally unconscious. It's unintentional in the sense that we don't even think about it. We just do it. It just comes naturally. But don't miss in this passage that God treats our unconscious, blind, unintentional trusting in men and making man our flesh, or flesh our, our trust rather. God treats that as a willful defection 
from worshiping him. Notice he says, cursed is the man who trusts in man whose heart turns away from the Lord. When we give our ultimate trust or allegiance to anyone other than God, by definition, at the same time, we are turning away from trusting in Him. So God says our false worship is what's wrong with us. And then thirdly, God says our oppression of others is what's wrong with us. And again, you can see how that naturally follows from a sick heart, false worship is going to lead to oppressing others. Now, we might think of that as like a major, horrible corporate takeover of a small business or just someone with a lot of power, a dictator or something, uh, building his glory and his kingdom on the backs of poor, weak people. But it doesn't have to be like that. Notice verse 11. Like the partridge that gathers a brood she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. Now, I've read Jeremiah 17 many, many, many times. I've taught on it many times. Up until about two weeks ago, I always skipped verse 11, because for the life of me, I had no idea what it meant. Like the partridge that gathers a brood she did not have. All I know about partridges is they're supposed to be in a pear tree at this time of year. So I always skipped it. But it's telling us the partridge takes what isn't hers. The man without integrity exploits his power to get rich at the expense of others. And again, this can be on a macro level like a, like a dictator or a corporate takeover. But, but brothers and sisters, it can be just normal, mundane, the way we do things. We don't naturally, apart from the grace of God, love others. Instead, we naturally use them to get what we want. Again, <clears throat> David Powelson has a phrase that is really helpful, but it's hard to hear. He calls these normal, everyday ways of using people routine forms of hatred. Ouch. I'm willing to admit that I don't love very well sometimes. I'm willing to admit that I'm, I'm often selfish, but routine forms of hatred? But that's what it is. If we're not loving, there is no neutral ground. How many times have we manipulated conversations to avoid uncomfortable topics or, get, or to get people to agree with us or affirm us. It's a routine form of hatred. How many times have we stolen someone's reputation by talking behind their back, even though we Christians like to call it sharing about a brother or a sister? It's a routine form of hatred. How many times have we sexualized a person in the way we looked at them? It's a routine form of hatred. How many times have we compared ourselves, envied, resented, or look down on others. They're just routine forms of hatred. How many times have we loved, like Jesus says the Gentiles do? We just love people who already love us. That's not hard. It's not hard for me most of the time to love my family. It's not hard at all for me to love my grandkids. 
That's my clan. They love me. What about people that don't love you? And what about all the times that we do nice things for people because we secretly want them to do something nice for us? It's just routine forms of hatred. And God says that this will leave us empty fools in the end. Now, notice verse 10. I want you to notice two things about the Lord as he considers our deceitful hearts, our false worship, and our oppression of others. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God searches hearts. He's not just up there doing God things in heaven and just hoping people don't get in too much trouble down here. He's searching his gaze into this world and into every one of our lives goes way deeper than any theory or therapy or religion or philosophy or self-improvement scheme or even our own introspection. Some of us spend an awful lot of time gazing inward ourselves, trying to find every sin, every bad motive, and every psychological hang-up so we can fix them. But God's gaze goes deeper. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. God searches our hearts, and it says He tests our minds. God tests us. How does He test us? By allowing, ordaining hard things in our life. When things are going well, of course we love God and love others. But what about when things are painfully hard or painfully scary? What's inside the water bottle starts to leak out, doesn't it? God tests us so that what is inside of us will come out. And then it says, he gives to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So he not only searches, he not only tests, he repays. And we don't even have to wonder what that looks like. In verse, the verses 5 and 6, he says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. His repayment looks like the curse of deprivation of every good thing. He says, the shrub out in the desert who's not planted by streams of water is not going to see any good thing. They're just going to live in an uninhabited salt land. And that might sound harsh, but it's totally just, isn't it? If our hearts turn away from the living God, from the fountain of living waters, from the source of every good, if we turn away from God, how, how could we expect that we're going to experience anything good? And it also looks like ultimate isolation from all loving relationships. And again, that just makes sense. If we're using people and manipulating people to get what we want, then it, it makes sense and it's just that we, that we dwell in a parched and uninhabited land. And then finally in verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Looks like eternal shame. 
Now, I said this was going to be a hard word, and I wonder what you're thinking right now. I wonder what, how you're responding to this. Some of you, I suspect, are responding, yada, 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 I've heard this all before. Tell me something I don't know. That, brothers and sisters, is a very dangerous attitude. But I suspect some of you might be feeling alarm right now or real discouragement. It's like, I knew it. I knew things were worse than I thought. I've got all these problems, and now I, I realize it's way worse than I think. I hope, I pray that your response to what I just said would be just like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. You remember the story? Paul and Silas are in prison. They're chained up. It's midnight. And instead of grumbling and complaining and cursing, they're singing hymns. And then God sends an earthquake, and their chains are broken, and they're, they're up, and they're free. And the jailer is filled with panic because he thinks they're going to escape, and he knows he's, he's going to get it in the neck if they, if they escape. And so he's about to do something really rash, and Paul says, no, stop, stop, it's okay. We're still here. We're not going anywhere. Now, that Philippian jailer knew instinctively that he was in the presence of something far beyond him. He's just seen unparalleled power. These prisoners are now free by the hand of God. And he knows instinctively that in the presence of this God, he's not right. He wouldn't have used all the biblical language that we have. He wouldn't have said, my heart is deceitful and desperately sick and I worship false gods, but that would be the reality. And he cried out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I hope that's your response right now. I hope that's my response right now. Because that response leads to life. And, and this passage in Jeremiah 17 tells us two things that we must do to be saved. And remember, Jeremiah is writing to believers, the New Testament, say the, the, the letter to the Romans, 16 chapters unpacking the gospel to believers. The gospel is not just what initially saves us and then do your best and hope you go to heaven someday. The gospel is what saves you every day. Every Sunday is a gospel Sunday. So this leads us to the gospel, I hope, there's someone here today that's not believed in Jesus and that you will put your faith in Christ today. But for most of us, we already believe, but this word is for us. The gospel is for you and for me today. So what are the two things that we must do to find the relief and the glorious cure for our sin sickness? First of all, verse 15, behold, they say to me, this is Jeremiah speaking, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. The first thing we must do is let this word convict us and own the diagnosis. Now, I don't know if the, if the Jews who were saying this to Jeremiah were sincere or not, but it's the right thing to say. 
Where is the word of the Lord? Only his word can tell me what's really wrong with me, and only his word can heal me. So let it come. As hard as it is, let it come. But it's always hard to acknowledge how the Lord sees our hearts and lives. We'd much rather not hear this. We'd much rather think our problem is anything other than just regular old sin. It's like Tim Keller says, the gospel starts with, you're much worse than you think. If you'll, let, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I want to just tell you about uh, one of my times of devotions in the last two weeks. Uh, in my, in, I alternate days, I was going through uh, one book, and the other book I was going through was 2 Samuel. And when you get to 2 Samuel 11, 12, and 13, it's not fun reading. 2 Samuel 11 is where David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then murders her husband. He has committed two capital crimes. He should be executed twice. But his deceitful, desperately sick heart is in total denial. And so in chapter 12, God sends Nathan the prophet and Nathan tells him that little story about the man with the little ewe lamb that was like a pet. And this other man who had many flocks, this rich man, and the rich man comes and takes the one man's poor little lamb, only lamb, and kills it and then feeds it to his friends at a party. And David, the shepherd boy, grown up now as king, is enraged. And he says, as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looked at him. He said, David, you are that man. No more deception. David is exposed. He's just pronounced the, the just judgment on himself. I deserve to die. And then Nathan says two things that are both very profound very profound. First of all, he says, David, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. The child that will be born to Bathsheba, that child will die. And so even there, we see a hint of a substitution. But then he says this, David, the sword shall not depart from your house. There's going to be trouble from now on in your house as the consequences to your sin. And then you get to chapter 13, and it starts to unpack all of that. And you see a family unraveling. It starts out with Amnon, one of David's sons, raping his sister, Tamar. And then Absalom, Tamar's brother, plots and kills Amnon. And David is devastated, and he weeps, but he doesn't do anything about it. And then Absalom is off in sort of uh, exile for a while, but David allows him to come back and restores him, and then later on, Absalom plots to steal the throne from his own father. This is, a, this is the most dysfunctional family ever. And I was, it, it, that day, it was the day to read chapter 13, and I knew what was coming, and I didn't want to read it. I didn't want to read about all those consequences of sin, but I said, I, I, I've got to do this. And so in my notebook, I'm just chronicling all these consequences, all these consequences, and it's just depressing. 
I turned the page in my notebook, and then I wrote this. As bad as these consequences of sin are, they pale in comparison to the horror and heinousness of the sin against God itself. Remember what God said, <coughs> excuse me, through Nathan. It's very poignant. He said, David, I took you out of the sheepfold. I made you king. I gave you Saul's house and his wives. I gave you the kingdom. And if that weren't enough, David, I would have done anything for you. Why did you despise me? Why did you hold my, did you, did you hold my word in contempt? God's heart is grieved by David's ingratitude and his lust and his oppression. Then I wrote this. I wrote a prayer. Lord, I am blind to my own sin. It is vile, loathsome, worthy of your contempt and deserving of your wrath. Oh, Abba, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am not worthy of the least of your kindnesses, and yet you have lavished on me grace upon grace. Even this slight conviction of sin is grace. I am speechless in the presence of your holy love. I don't usually think that way. I confess to you that most of the time I think, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I work at the church. You know, but that's reality. My deceitful, desperately sick heart, my false worship, my routine forms of hatred. So that's the first thing. The Lord's Word cuts deep so it can heal deep. We need to own the diagnosis. And then the second thing is in verse 14, and it just shines. It just radiates hope. Heal, this is, this is Jeremiah speaking. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. I can't tell you how many times in the last week or so I have prayed that prayer, including last night when I went to bed and including this morning. I just need to be saved and healed. Do you hear that cry? The illness we're talking about is beyond any doctor's help. No religious leader or self-help guru can save you. You can't save yourself by your right belief or your good works or your personal piety or your religious experiences. As one writer said, what you need and what I need is the blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus Christ. We need his wrath and curse-bearing death and his glorious resurrection and ascension and intercession. We are great sinners and we need a greater Savior. But we have this assurance from the Apostle Paul in Romans 10. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe for the first time today, praise God, maybe for the 4,000th time. But if you are aware this morning 
of a heart that's not right, of worship that often goes astray, and the fact that you don't love very well. This is your prayer. Heal me and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me just end now with a little good gospel grace. We've gone pretty deep, but the gospel of grace goes deeper. So why is Jesus your only hope, but your all-sufficient and glorious hope? Let me give you a few reasons. Jeremiah says, cursed is the man who trusts in man. That's you. That's me. But the gospel says, Christ Jesus, who always trusted in his Father, he redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. There's that substitution. Just like that child died instead of David. So the baby born in Christmas grew up and died instead of you. He took the wrath. He took the curse that we deserved so that we could receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Second, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. There's only one heart that wasn't desperately sick, and of course, that was Jesus. His perfect, sinless, beautiful heart was pierced through on the cross and blood and water flowed out so that he could say to you, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Third, Jeremiah says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. That's us. Jesus always honored his Father. He is the only one who didn't deserve shame. And yet he was stripped naked, beaten, whipped, spit on, mocked, hung there the epitome of shame crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that God could clothe your shameful nakedness in the garments of salvation and never leave you or forsake you. The Apostle Peter summarized this gospel cure this way. Hear these words. Believe them. Rejoice in them. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Own the diagnosis and cry out this morning for healing and salvation and know that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's just be quiet for a few moments right now, and this is an opportunity for you to talk to the Lord.
Lord, there's two things that we know this morning. <clears throat> we are great sinners, far worse than we even know. But Jesus Christ is a great Savior, infinitely greater than we will, we will spend the rest of eternity searching out. We thank you for his shed blood that washes us clean. We thank you for the forgiveness that that blood has procured for us. We thank you for his righteousness, which clothes us and makes us acceptable to you. We thank you that in him we are beloved and adopted as your children, that your spirit is remaking us right now into, into his glorious image, that you actually use us for gospel work, and one day we will be home in your house forever, experiencing joy upon joy upon joy. Give us hearts to respond today, Lord, and help us to live it out this week, we pray in Jesus' name.